You are listening to audio from Creekside Community Church. If you'd like to learn more about Creekside, find out about our services and upcoming events, or listen to other sermons, please visit creeksidecommunity.org. Today's passage, Paul talks about the, the presence of Christ dwelling not just in us, but among us. This is a, a sacred time where we get to gather as God's people because Jesus is present in a special way to teach us, to instruct us, which means he deserves our full attention. So let's go to him in prayer and ask him to teach us from his word. And now, Father, we thank you that you have made us your dwelling place. By your spirit, you dwell in us and also among us in this fellowship. And Jesus, we believe that you are here right now among us. And you are desiring to teach us, to instruct us. And you promise to do that through your spirit and by your word. So thank you, Jesus. We welcome you here. We ask you to teach us, to change us, to make us more like you. God, that's why we're here, not to hear from any man, but from you, Jesus. Teach us now from your word, we ask in your name. Amen. You might remember back in April of 2019, the Cathedral of Notre Dame de Paris caught fire. And that fire quickly set the roof ablaze, the spire was destroyed, and this ancient structure almost collapsed. Thankfully, the authorities were able to to put it out and salvage the building. Uh, But what was interesting was to see the the French government's response because almost immediately, the government pledged to restore Notre Dame, not to renovate it, not to give it some cool new open concept look, but to restore it. And that restoration work has continued for the past few years. Here's a picture of the scaffolding. Even the scaffolding is a work of art. People have donated around a billion dollars toward this restoration project. Just to reconstruct the spire, they've they've handpicked a thousand oak trees from 200 different forests just to rebuild that. And 400 new tradesmen have to be trained in various skills, and the training can take up to a decade. And right now, glass masters from eight prestigious guilds from around France are by hand cleaning every piece of stained glass in the cathedral, and it takes five hours per panel. Per panel. And some of us might ask, why? Why? It's just a building, right? And that's a very American response because Americans love destroying things and rebuilding things, right? We have a design principle here at Creekside. Don't create anything that we can't destroy and change later. We love renovating, freshening things up. Why is this building different? Well, because Notre Dame, it's not just a building. It it encapsulates French history, French culture, European history, European culture, and that building, it doesn't belong to any one person. It doesn't belong to the government. It sort of just belongs to the nation. It took 200 years to build. So think about how many people died never seeing its completion. It stood for 800 years. And so I want you to imagine this morning, Creekside, that you were tasked with some job building that cathedral. How would you view your work? Would you think, you know, I'm going to take some artistic liberties with this point. I got my own vision for this, okay? According to Scripture, God owns a building. It's this great cathedral. He's been working on it since the beginning of time. It's a building that will endure forever, that will never perish. And he invites you to work on his house. He gives you blueprints. He tells you what to do. How should you work on it? How does that change the way you view ministry? That's what I want to talk to you about this morning. 
So we're in this series on Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, and what should be clear by now is that this church is a mess. It's a complete mess, and yet it's a blessed mess because God loves him anyways. So does Paul. God doesn't give up on his church. He cleans us up. He confronts our sin. He helps us out and helps us answer our problems and our questions. And that's what Paul's doing for this church that he dearly loves. And in chapters 1 through 4, Paul confronts this church's biggest problem. And what was that problem? I'm, going, I'm starting early with this feedback this morning, right? <laughs> want to get you involved. It's division. Division is the big problem. This church was obsessed with human leaders, and they were dividing into factions. They created different fan clubs in the church. Some people were following Paul, others Apollos, others Peter's, and they were warring against each other, tearing each other down, and ultimately they're tearing apart the body of Christ. And now Paul is correcting them And he corrects them by directing their gaze up. He says spiritually healthy people, mature people, don't get so fixated on each other or fixated on human leaders. Instead, who do they focus on? God. They focus at the God at work in the church. And we saw this last week. In chapter 3, Paul uses this image from agriculture to drive his point home, right? He said, I planted this church. Apollos, who came after me, he watered this church. Who caused the growth of this church? Who gave life to this church? It was God. So ultimately, the person you should be focused on is not this leader or that leader, but the God who gives the growth. And now in today's passage, Paul's going to continue this God-centered perspective, but but now he's going to change the metaphor from agriculture and farming to architecture and construction. Verse 9, he says this, For we are God's fellow workers. You, Corinthians, are God's field, that's agriculture, and now God's building. God's building. We, Paul and Apostles, are the workers. You are the building. And now in verses 10 through 23, Paul is going to build on this metaphor of the church as a building. He's going to continue this vertical focus, this God-centered focus, But he already showed them how it should change their view of Christian leaders. Now he's going to show them how it should change their view of themselves and their own ministries. He says this, that according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Here's the big point. If you've got your Bible app out or your Bible, this is the point to underline. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. In verse 5, Paul said, I'm a farmer, I plant. Now he says, I'm a skilled master builder. That word master builder is the Greek word architectone. You can guess what word we get from that. Architect. In Paul's day, the master builder, the architectone, he was sort of the project manager. So he would ensure that the building went according to plan, according to design, exactly to the specifications of the owner. And again, we see Paul's humility here. He's not the owner of the church. What is he? He's the manager. And he's managing according to whose design? God's. He he manages according to the grace God gave him. That's his ministry as an apostle. God graciously commissioned Paul to start churches, and Paul took that assignment with utter seriousness. He didn't just come up with what he was supposed to do. He said, I'm going to plant churches according to God's design, by God's design, for God's glory. Why? Because it's God's church. This isn't my project. It's his. That's why he says, I conduct it like a skilled master builder, literally a wise builder. Paul is saying, I conducted my work wisely. Now, wait a minute, you might say. That doesn't sound very humble, does it? Is Paul saying he's wise? That'd be a problem, wouldn't it? Because Paul sounds a little hypocritical then, doesn't he? I mean, what has he been just berating the Corinthians for? Boasting in what? Their own wisdom. So it would be pretty weird if Paul was like, you guys need to stop talking about how wise you are. And by the way, I am wise. 
just to let you know. Is that what Paul's doing? No, he's not. Because he immediately clarifies what he means. Paul isn't using his own wisdom to build the church. What does it mean to be a wise master builder? It's to use God's wisdom. Jesus Christ. That's the foundation. That's the blueprint. That's how Paul is building this church. He already defined wisdom back in chapters 1 and 2 as Christ crucified. He didn't come up with that. That's God's wisdom. That's what he's planting the church on because the church ultimately only exists because of who? Jesus. That's the easy fill in the blank for this morning, okay? Jesus. The only reason there is a redeemed people of God is because of Jesus Christ, his death, his resurrection, what he's done. That's why you're here. And so the only thing the church can be built on is belief in Jesus. And the only thing the church can continue to be built on is belief in that Jesus. And that's Paul's point. This is what everything rests on, Christ crucified, and that determines the shape of the building. We'll return to that point in a little bit. So, God lays a foundation, Jesus Christ. Paul lays this at Corinth, and then he says to you and to me, let each one take care how he builds, how she builds how we built. That's the big idea today. God has invited us into this construction project. Three questions to think about this morning. First, who's called to do this? Who are the builders? Second, why is careful building required? And then then three, this really gets to the heart of the point. How can we build something that lasts? Who builds Why is careful building required? How do you build something that will endure into eternity? So that's where we're going. Let's look at question one. Who is called to build God's house? Another way of saying that is, who is is called to spiritually invest in other people in the church? Here's why it's important for us to get that question right. Because until you, as a believer in Jesus, see it not just as Jeff's responsibility— or John's responsibility, or the leaders of the church's responsibility, but my responsibility to build the church, you won't view your own role in the body of Christ rightly. One summer during college, uh, I took a job working construction, and that, dis- that, that summer I, I discovered something. I discovered that God had called me to be a pastor, um, not to work construction, because I was terrible at it. On the first day, my friend brought me to the job site, and I was all excited, and I thought I'm going to be framing stuff and building stuff. And so he takes me to the job site. He wants to get a sense of my skills, you know, and uh, he gave me the blueprints for this bathroom they were building. And he said, okay, here's the cuts you need to make. Here's the plan. Here's the, here's the wall to build. Pretty simple, Jeff. Just go build that wall. So I said, great. And I got out the skill saw and I, I got out the nail gun and I worked for about 30 seconds and he saw what he was doing with Jeff. Great. That's great. Okay. Stop. Stop, Jeff. Thank you. Thank you. That's great. Okay. I think I've seen what I need to see. Um, here's a shovel. Why don't you go over there and dig a hole? And, and I dug a lot of holes that summer. Um, if you need a hole dug at your house, I, I'm the guy. I'm not the guy to frame a wall. But, but here's what I immediately concluded. I am not cut out for this. I, I'm not cut out for this. This is a big problem among God's people. That, that we platform leaders and speakers and communicators and we associate that with effective ministry. That's what it is. And then for a lot of people, they go, oh, I can't do that. So what? Ministry is not for me. I'll go dig a hole somewhere, Right? I'll go do some of these menial tasks, but teaching people to observe all that Jesus commanded, ministering to people, that's not my thing. It's so important that we get that out of our heads. Because God isn't calling you to anything menial in the body of Christ. He's calling you to make an internal difference in the lives of other people, and you're just as much called to it as any official church leader. You've got to own that for the church to be a healthy place. Who is Paul talking to in this passage? Well, at face value, the obvious answer is Paul is talking to church leaders. In the context, Paul even makes a distinction between leaders of the church 
and, and the church itself. Remember verse 9, what does he say? We are God's workers, you are God's building, right? So it seems like the obvious answer is this passage is directed to people like me. People who stand up and talk to you. We are God's workers. You are the building. You are the thing getting worked upon. So this passage would primarily apply to who? Me. Now, before you go, that's right, Jeff. This just applies to you. You better pay attention. Uh, let's look more closely because here's what's interesting about what Paul does. Yes, this passage is primarily directed to those who lead the church in an official capacity. But notice, Paul doesn't restrict his exhortation to leaders. What does he say in verse 10? He said, let each one take care how he builds. That's pretty broad, isn't it? Each one. Well, who? Each member of the body of Christ. He goes on, verse 12, he says, if anyone. Again, in verse 16, if anyone. Paul is very broad in his description of who is responsible to build God's house. And the obvious implication is this. Yes, church leaders are builders, but who else is a builder? Everyone is a builder. Which means I am either actively contributing to building people or I'm not working according to my job description. We're all builders. Paul makes that point even more explicitly in Ephesians 4. Remember what he says? He says that God gives leaders to the church, people like me, but what do leaders do? They equip the saints, you, everyone else, for what? For the work of ministry. So church leaders help everyone do what? The work of ministry. Well, what's the work of ministry? Sitting still listening to sermons, laughing at my bad jokes, paying me a lot of money. Is that the work of ministry? No. The work of ministry, well, let's just see how Paul defines the work of ministry in the passage, Ephesians 4. He says, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. What is the work of ministry we're all called to? It's to speak the truth of Christ, the Word of God from the Bible, to embody the love of Christ in the way we live, and as I speak the truth of Christ in the Word, modeling the love of Christ, what Paul is saying in a very convoluted and complicated way is this, that as I do those things, Christ the head, his power and life flow through me to you. And through you to me, and the whole body is built up and looks more and more like Jesus. That's when the church is healthiest when everyone sees it as their responsibility to communicate the word of God, displaying the love of God to one another, and when everyone is doing that, everyone participates in this grand construction project and God's house is built up. You are called to build the house. You invest in people. That's how you build the house. You point them towards the truth that you see in Scripture that God's teaching you, you model the truth by loving well, and as you do that, people grow. And bottom line, that's what it means to minister. In fact, that's what it means to make disciples. It just helps someone to grow in Christ by sharing what Christ is teaching you from the Word as you model that, which gives you credibility. Does that make sense? That's it. That's your basic responsibility. Here's what that means for ministry at Creekside. You know, there are a lot of ways to serve at Creekside, right? You can greet, you can do hospitality or security or worship or tech or kids ministry or kids ministry, or you could do kids ministry, or you might think about doing kids ministry at some point. We really always need people in kids ministry. But here's the thing, you know, the, the way we most want you to serve here the thing I care about more than anything else, even if you do none of those other things, is that you would have one person who's not quite as far along in the faith as you, just one, and you would be making a spiritual investment in that person. That's it. That, that is the baseline of what it means to minister, okay? So ultimately, the thing I'm doing all the time is not different than the thing you're doing all the time. 
It's just finding someone who you're a little further ahead of, teaching them what Christ is teaching you from the word, modeling that in your life in love, and then the whole body is built up. And here's the truth, family. Like, you can have a church with the lamest preaching, the most boring preaching, the clunkiest worship services, the most unimpressive programs, and if the majority of people were doing that, it would be an unimaginably, spectacularly healthy and effective church. Conversely, if you had a church with the most beautiful institutional everything, from building to budget to programs to preaching, and that's not going on, that's building on a house of cards. That thing is one crisis away from collapsing completely. So family, you're called to this. You're called to this. The health of the church really does depend on every member buying into this. And so the question you should ask and be able to answer this morning is this. Who am I building into? Who am I building into? If, if you have a piece of paper, you should be able to write down the name. If you have a phone, you should be able to pull out a note and then write down the name and then put away your phone so you can focus on me, okay? <laughs> you, you should have an answer to that question. If, if you have parents, you already know the answer. It's your kids. You might not have known it before. It's your kids. That's who you're spiritually investing in, okay? Now, if you can't answer that question today, it's okay. It's okay because that's where we all start. It isn't always clear who we're supposed to invest in. But here's the next step. Pray right now, God, would you lead me to that person that I'm supposed to be investing in? God, I don't know who it is. Would you make it clear? Before Jesus picked his disciples, what did he do? He prayed. He prayed. Pray, God, show me that person. And here's the, the beautiful thing. You don't have to be years ahead of them spiritually. You know how far ahead of them you need to be? One step. <laughs> One step, that's it. All you're doing is showing them what God is teaching you. Just a little ahead. That's it, okay? And man, if we all did that, it would be spectacular. Spectacular how healthy this church. In fact, that's the reason this church is healthy. That's, I think, the reason this church survived COVID because so many of you do it. And so this church was already had those kind of relationships. So just excel more in that. So embrace the calling. That's step one. God wants to use you to build his house. Now view the work rightly. Because this isn't just any work family. This is God's work. Because this is God's house. This is more sacred than Notre Dame. This is more sacred than any earthly monument this is God's construction project because God wants to live here. That should change your perspective on the people around you. This isn't just any old building. What does Paul say, verse 16? Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? Can you sense Paul's exasperation here? Anytime you say to someone, don't you know that? You're exasperated, right? See, this is a church where people were judging each other, assuming the worst of each other, tearing each other down, belittling each other, seeking to one-up each other. And Paul says, are you kidding me? Corinthians, don't you know who boast in knowledge and how wise you are? Don't you even know what you are? You're the temple of God, so can't you see what you are doing? Who are we, family? The temple. The, the dwelling place of the Most High God. People have often interpreted this verse in an individualistic way, like Paul is saying that you, singular, are a temple of the Holy Spirit. And then people say things like, I'm a temple, my body is a temple. I am God's dwelling place and therefore I should treat my body with holiness and I, I, with purity because God dwells in me. And the thing is, that's all true. It's all true. And Paul says exactly that in 1 Corinthians 6, a few chapters later. That's not what he's saying here. He is not saying that you, individual, are a temple. He's saying y'all, second person plural, y'all are the temple. This is why we need a y'all version of the Bible. Because so often we'll read the New Testament, we'll hear commands, we hear you, and we think singular, almost always it's plural. 
It's something we are supposed to live out. Y'all are the temple. We are the temple. And God's spirit dwells in or better among us. What does that mean? That God's spirit and the fullness of God's spirit takes up residence in a special, particular way in our gathered life together, in our fellowship together. That raises the stakes in our relationships with each other, doesn't it? You know why? Because see, treating you lightly, demeaning you, ignoring you, assuming the worst of you, disregarding you, judging you harshly, it's not just a mistreatment of you. It's an assault on the dwelling place of God, and who ultimately is that against? God. The presence of God. Whew. That raises the stakes, doesn't it? Uh, go read the Old Testament sometimes and look at how seriously the Jews were to take the temple, God's dwelling place. Not just anyone could enter it. In fact, the, the, only the high priest could enter the holiest place, and he had to confess and purify himself and make sure that he was in the absolute right state, the best state he could be in. And then in a sense, he had to put on armor to go in there so that the presence of God wouldn't break out against him and consume him. Any mistreatment of the temple was a mistreatment of God himself and would be punishable by what? Death. Because we're dealing with the holiness of, of the most holy God here. Where does that holy one dwell now? Here, not just in me, the fullness is in and among us. That's why the consequences could not be higher here. That's why Paul goes on to say, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. There is not a sharper warning in the New Testament regarding our treatment of the people of God. Paul's going Old Testament on the church here. Just as in the Old Testament, if you profane the holy place, it was punishable by death. If you destroy God's people, you will be destroyed. That's what Paul is saying. Now, what does that mean? What does that mean for us as believers? That's a good question. I'll come back to it. But, but I hope what is clear at this point is that careful building is required because we're building God's house. And these are God's people. And God is present in a unique and special way among us. And so an application question is this, is my view of people in the church based primarily on who they are or on who God is? See, God has chosen to take up fellowship here. I mean, imagine if Jesus walked, Jesus incarnate, just in the flesh, just walked in this morning. I think we treat him well, don't you? Don't you? I think we'd give him the place of honor. I hope so. I hope that we'd bow at his feet. I hope that we'd serve him. I hope that we would honor him. There couldn't be a more natural thing to do as a believer. Well, what's Paul saying? That the presence of the risen Christ, he's here. And how we treat each other is ultimately the way we treat him and our view of him. When Jesus shows up to Paul on the road to Damascus, he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me. Who was Paul persecuting? Christ's people. What does Christ say? Why are you persecuting me? The truth is, I can't honor Christ any more than the Christian I honor least. See, and that fosters repentance in my heart over things I harbor toward other believers because the stakes are high here. That's why I should build with care. How do you view the people in the church? And so if this is true, if I'm called to build God's house, if it's God's house and this is sacred work, how should I build? That's the big question. How do I make a lasting investment in other people? Because this work, it deserves the best of who I am, doesn't it? If it's God's work building into the people of God, how do I do it in a way that lasts? Well, here's the reality that Paul talks about. Not everything we do to invest in other people is going to last. In fact, it's possible to be a Christian and do some pretty shoddy work. It's like most of my work around the house. I fix it, then I call someone else in to fix it, right? <laughs> like, I make the repair, and then someone has to repair the repair. You know, I, I tighten the plumbing and break the pipe, and then the plumber has to come in. There's a way to work that is shoddy. 
that, that won't last. And so we have to use the best materials. See, our work is going to be tested. Here's what Paul says. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation of Christ with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. On the day of Christ's return, God, the consuming fire, will come down and will evaluate the work of our ministry. And it will become evident that day whether our investment of other people was quality or it was cruddy. Really can't be used in eternity. It's a sobering thought, isn't it? To think I could have made an investment in people, but I wasn't building with the right materials. And then on this day of revelation, when it's revealed by fire of God's presence, some of it just doesn't last so what's the implication? Build with the good stuff. Paul isn't contrasting six things in this passage, okay? When he says gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, he's contrasting two things. There are quality things that can withstand the test of fire. There are cruddy things that get consumed by fire. Build with quality. And remember, we're talking about the temple, and that helps us to understand what Paul's talking about because you read the Old Testament, what was the temple built out of? The good stuff, the quality stuff, the stuff that endures. I mean, have you ever wondered why is God so tedious in describing the construction of the temple? I mean, if we were to take a survey this morning, what are the most boring parts of the Bible? The most tedious to read, I think overviews of the construction of the temple might be number one, right? That might even beat out genealogies. It's like, why? 10,000 talents of this, 15,000. It was this many cubits long. It was like, why are you going into such an insane amount of detail describing the tabernacle and then Solomon's temple and then the new temple? I mean, it's like eight chapters of Ezekiel at the very end. And you're just like, this is an anticlimax, isn't it? Like, oh my gosh, why? Why is it so tedious? Because it's God's house. No detail should be overlooked. No expense spared. This should be the most quality, the most precision, the most excellence you could imagine because you're building a house for who God's going to live there. His fire is going to dwell in this place. So I want to build something that's fit for who? Him. Him. Not everything is. In fact, it's possible to build in a way that's shoddy and it doesn't last. In fact, Paul goes on now to describe three different ways to, to build God's house. This is Paul's version of the three little pigs, by the way. Right? Remember the story of the three little pigs? And except in, in God's story, the wolf is actually God and he's the good guy. He tests the work. And then the three little pigs, actually one, there's two pigs. One builds shoddy, one builds quality. And the third pig is actually a wolf. Uh, but he's a wolf in pig's clothing um, who's actually destroying the church. I promise that'll all make sense in, in a second here. So, three builders, three builders. The first builder builds with shoddy materials. Paul says this, if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. This verse has been subject to all sorts of misinterpretation. All sorts of misinterpretation. Because some people think this is talking about the individual believer's holiness. And there are some Christians that are just so carnal and so sinful, they don't do anything good, and then they get into heaven by the skin of their teeth, right? And then they, everything else is going to be purified and, and burned off, but they get in because they're saved. Is that what Paul's talking about? No. No. Uh, sometimes uh, Roman Catholics have seen this as a reference to purgatory, that some believers, because of unconfessed sin, they have to go to some post-mortem state where they have to be purified with fire until they're finally right for heaven. This has nothing to do with that uh, because this is about return of Christ. This isn't about some post-mortem state. And besides that, what is burned up here? It isn't the believer. It's the believer's what? Work. It's their ministry. Here's the point. You can be very active in the lives of God's people. You can be doing lots of things and be doing shoddy work that won't be used in their lives. 
This is what the Corinthians were in danger of, right? They're just building in a shoddy way. They're active in the church, but they're prideful. They're not acting with love. They're enamored with human wisdom and they're trying to teach the latest intellectual fads all the time. They're not building on Christ crucified. And all that stuff is what? Fading away. It'll perish. They're just teaching the newest, coolest way to be Christian all the time. Techniques, fads, all these things that even, it's not even an eternity we'll see those are silly. Five years later, it's the kind of things you go, that was stupid to focus on. That's shoddy material. That's some believers. And so it should raise this question, what does quality work look like? I mean, don't you want to build something in other people's lives that lasts? Don't you want to invest in them in a way that when you get to eternity, you see who they are, the glory of what God has done in their life. I had a part in that because I built something that lasts. It was actually fit to be part of God's house forever. That motivates me. That motivates me. What does quality work look like? Paul, Paul tells us, he says, if, anyone, if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, survives the fire of testing, right, at the day of Christ's return, he will receive a reward. What does quality work look like? Three things quickly and then we're done. First, quality work builds on the right foundation. Truth. Notice Paul has talked about the foundation a few times now, hasn't he? Here's the deal with the foundation. It doesn't just support the building. The foundation determines the design of the building. Right? What is subsequently built depends on what the foundation looks like. Do you see why that's important? What did, what did Paul found this church on? Christ crucified. The foundation determines the design. What do you build the church on then? Christ crucified. And what do you keep building the church on? Christ crucified. It has to look like the foundation. Does that make sense? It has to fit the design. Here's what it means. The only thing that will endure is the truth that you point people to. And the truth specifically of Christ crucified revealed in the word. Here, here's what I would encourage you to think about as you're making an investment in other people's. You know, I get excited about learning new things. I don't know about you. Do you get excited about learning new things? And sometimes when I'm talking to people, it's just, hey, I'm going to teach you with this newest insight or what this preacher said or this latest, greatest idea I have or, oh, I learned the study and it says this about that and blah, 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 right? And that's all interesting. But ultimately, the investment you make should lead people back to what? Christ and his word so they can see from the word, oh, wow, God is teaching you from here. He's teaching you from here here. And any teacher, any study, whatever, they're just amplifying what's in here. That's why at Creekside, we don't spend a ton of time recommending books to you and literature because the publishing of Christian literature, there will be no end, right? Some of it's great. Some of it's complete garbage that'll get burned up on the day of Christ. But, but ultimately, it's all got to point back to the gospel and what's revealed in here. So, so as you're investing in people, you should be able to help them see what's God teaching you from here because that's the thing that's going to last, okay? That's the foundation. It has to be on that foundation because anything else that's not in accordance with this is going to get burned up. No matter how good or wise or accurate sounding it is to you, if it doesn't ultimately lead them back to here, it doesn't build them for eternity. Does that make sense? So truth, that's the source. Next, the quality has to be with love. It should build a love for the church and people as you are working in them. What does Paul say? Let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas. I love this. The Corinthians were saying things like, I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. I've got the best teacher. They were tearing other people down. You see what Paul does? He flips their saying on its head. They said, I am of Paul. Paul says, we are all of you. What's Paul saying? Do you know what we are? We weren't out to do this because we were in a fan club. We did this because we are your servants. You're, you're too narrow in your view, Corinthians. You want to be identified with this Christian leader or this Christian leader. Every Christian leader is yours. They're all here just to serve you. That's the point of this is to build you up. I wasn't out to get a fan club. 
I'm just out to build you up in the faith. See, Paul is modeling what he wants the Corinthians to think like here. Look at what you have in Christ. All the people to serve you, so serve other people. This is a theme throughout Corinthians that, that, that we as the body of Christ, we are called to build up those around us. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. What are we called to be servants? Here's what that means. When we come into church or we come to any Christian gathering, we are looking to serve the people there and build them up. And that's our reason for being there. That's it, right? That's what it means. Here's the thing. Here's the reality of Christian community. Everyone in here comes here looking for the same thing. They want to be loved. They want to be built up. They want to be served, acknowledged, seen, listened to. Everyone wants that. Everyone comes looking to get that, and they should rightly expect it from the church. But who comes looking to give that? See, that's the problem, right? If everyone comes expecting to be built up, and no one comes looking to build up, what happens? Everyone goes, I can't believe how unloving that church is, right? They didn't take an interest in me. They didn't draw me out. They didn't pour me out. Well, why? Because no one flipped it and thought, I'm not here to be poured into. I'm here to pour out. Right? So, so that should frame our view of the people we're investing in. It's not for what I get out of it. I already have everything I need in Christ. All things are mine in Christ. It's not so that I could be encouraged, it's so I can encourage them. And imagine if everyone in the church took that posture. Oh, it would just be a love fest here all the time, right? I mean, it'd be unbelievable. See, that's my mindset. I'm not coming in looking to get built up. I'm looking to build up. That's what it means to serve in love. Here's the other thing I, I, I would say about this. Um, as you're building into people, the thing that you should instill in them is a love for God's people. People, as they get to spend time with you, it's not just that they love being with you, it's that they love God's church. You see how Paul does this? Like this church, they were so focused on certain human teachers. He said, I, that guy's the best teacher, so I follow him. And what does Paul say here? You're so narrow in your thinking. You want to identify with this tribe of Christianity when God has given you teachers from all over that are your servants. Here, and this is a little off topic, but it's, I, I'm burdened about this. So, you know, it's great to be discerning about truth, but man, Christian fan clubs can be so destructive when we say that the, basically the truth of Christianity is completely located in this teacher or in this personality or in this denomination or this thing, here, here's the problem with that. It's good to be discerning about truth, but when you locate it in a certain fan club, here's, here's what ultimately happens. What are you saying about every other Christian in the world? <laughs> They're all sort of wrong. But, but this guy, this woman, this tribe, oh, they've got the truth. And it's very easy to start going, oh, and they're all idiots over here. Instead of potentially incredible resources that God wants to teach you through as well. And here's what happens, and this is why I think some people deconstruct their faith, honestly, is if you have this very narrow view that only this little tribe gets the truth completely right and all these people are idiots, here's the mindset that takes root in people's lives. Well, gee, all of them were wrong. Am I sure I'm right? And am I sure they're right? And that process of critiquing and deconstructing every other Christian all the time, they just apply it to their own tribe. And then they deconstruct their way right out of the faith. We should, in the way we talk about other Christians, be charitable, be kind, and seek to highlight true things wherever we can to show that God's truth and God's people, it's way bigger than us. And it's way more enduring, and that should give you confidence because God has given this. <laughs> the resources of church history are just, it's just a hoard of riches. All things are yours. 
You don't know this, but every Sunday you get taught by Athanasius and Chrysostom and Aquinas and Augustine and Calvin and Luther and Owen and Spurgeon, and you're learning from all of them. You don't know that because I'm not like, ooh, be of them, but they've all taught me, and now they're teaching you. The, the truth is big, and as people spend time with you, they should go, wow, God's church is big, it's broad, it's true, it's been true, it's going to be true. I should serve them. Last thing, and then we're done. Oh, man, I got like three more sermons I want to preach from this passage right now, but I'm not going to. Final thing, quality work takes a long view. This is a big project, right? It's going to endure into eternity. Paul goes on to say to the Corinthians at the end of this passage, all things are yours, not just church leaders, but what? the world, life, death, the present, the future, all are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. Wow. Wow. He's saying, Corinthians, do you see what an incredible privilege it is to be part of the church? You're all squabbling over these narrow tribal fighting and all this. He says, not only are all these leaders just your servants, but you already have everything you could ever want coming to you. Death can't touch you. Life goes on forever. Your inheritance is Christ. You inherit the world. You couldn't want more glory and honor and blessing than that. Because what were these Christians fixated on? worldly status, worldly power, getting what I want right now. And Paul says, you've got everything coming to you. You've got everything coming to you. So live in light of that eternal reality. Live with an eternal perspective. As you're serving people, you're not doing it for status. You're not doing it so they'll say thank you because they won't most of the time. You're not doing it so people will be impressed. You're not even doing it so you can see lives changed because oftentimes you won't see the lives changed. You are confident that on one day, Christ will be revealed and those who are faithful will be revealed in honor and glory and their work will endure. That's an eternal perspective. That's an eternal perspective. Paul talks about a reward in this passage. If you do good work, you get a reward. Did you know that as a Christian? Did you know that? We're saved by grace. The reward is not salvation. We already have that. The reward is the honor Christ will give for faithful service. And here's the thing about the reward. It lasts into eternity. So it's grace too, right? It's not some repayment. <laughs> It's an eternal reward for temporary work. That's pretty gracious, right? But what is the reward? What is the reward for quality work? You know, here's what I think the reward is if we invest in other people. Paul tells us, 1 Thessalonians, what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Here's what Paul says to the church at Thessalonica. What I will glory in, my joy at the return of Christ, my reward, you know what it's going to be? The people I invested in. That's the reward, is seeing that somehow God used an idiot like me. And I actually did love and did say some things that were true. And God used it to create an eternal transformation in someone else. I mean, is there a better reward than that? to make a difference for eternity in the lives of the people that you invested in? What are you investing in now? You know, top five regrets of those who, who, who die when they're dying. You ever read these? One is I wish I hadn't worked so much, but two is I, I wish I had stayed in touch with my friends. Basically, I wish I hadn't focused so much on earthly accomplishments and focused more on relationships. That's true when people die. That's true in eternity. As we look back, I think the number one regret is why did I focus so much on my success, my plots, climbing some ladder, and not just on making a difference in the lives of other people? That's the thing that's going to last, family. That's the thing that should motivate you now. That's a reward worth having. I want to be able to look at tons of people on the day of Christ and know that I did something that God could actually use in their lives for eternity.
That's it. So family, which builder are you? Some of you might be doing some shoddy work right now. And that's okay if you realize that it's time to repent. Some of you aren't building at all. And you go, okay, I need to find someone to invest in. Some of you know you're doing quality work. Don't get discouraged. On the day of Christ, it'll be revealed. Some of you could be destroying God's church. How do I know if that's me? Am I tearing people down? Am I slandering people? Am I giving people a, a perception of others that paints them in the worst possible light? Am I recommending resources that are actually in some way false or misleading and that are leading people down a bad path? Now, here's the thing. We go, oh man, could a true believer destroy God's church and be destroyed and lose their salvation? Here's why I think Paul gives that warning. He gives the warning to protect us. The reality is God's people won't ultimately destroy God's church. They'll repent. So that's the warning. If you know you're tearing people down, here's what I'm confident of. If you belong to Christ, you're not going to continue in it. You won't continue tearing people down. You're going to repent and go, oh my gosh. I'm tearing down Christ's bride. I'm tearing down what God is building by tearing down other people. And so I'm just confident that you're not ultimately going to destroy the church. But it's a sober warning, isn't it? The warning is there so that we do persevere, but it is a warning. True believers will persevere, they will repent, but this is how they know we they're true believers, is that they repent and take that warning. So if that's you, repent. And here's what I'd say to you if you're not part of the house yet. Become part of the house. Think about how many things in your life you're going to build that are going to not last. Right? How many accomplishments aren't going to last? How many things you're working for that, that just, you just kind of know they're going to fade? Right? God's inviting you into his project and you can build something that lasts forever. There is nothing more significant than that. And, and that's what Jesus invites you to when you confess your sin, when you trust in him, trust in his death and resurrection, he makes you a part of the temple and you get to be part of this eternal building project too. All right, let's pray. So Father, we thank you for this great privilege of uh, God, uh, contracting with us to build your house. And thank you that you do the heavy lifting, that you cause the growth, Lord, that it's your work through us. God, even the reward is grace, but I, I just pray, Lord, that, that you would help us to build with quality materials. And God, uh, what that means is that we would give the very best of ourselves to each other. Lord, we point people to your word, that we would model sacrificial love, and that, Lord, each of us would be able to look back on the day of Christ and when we see each other displayed with your beauty, we'd know I had a hand in helping them get there. God, would we take great joy in knowing that our temporary efforts make an eternal difference. We ask it in your name. Amen. Let's all stand.